Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And daughter, do death. Good evening, Phoebe. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Sheltering from this horrible weather we're having at the moment. It's uh, raining and windy and stormy and autumn has hit. (laughs) <laughs> no not not this sort of autumn though I like the autumn when it's dry <laughs> not the autumn when it's crisp wet. and dry and sunny with falling brown leaves absolutely yeah squirrels running around with their absolutely. acorns in yeah. their paws and things yeah that's exactly what I like yeah <laughs> a couple of friendly foxes just hanging around but I think the good news that we both have to share is we both managed to fill up our tanks with fuel in the last we three did. four hours after not the... panic buying because we actually needed four tanks actually of fuel. Needed, yeah yeah so uh yeah it's what a week been that's been nuts for about four or five Crazy. days everyone going mad queuing up so around weird. the block <laughs> Was it you that was saying that like COVID's just like sent everyone mad? Like yeah. <laughs> as soon as like something happens, everyone's like, ah, and everyone like yeah. panics about yeah. it well, like straight yeah. away. It's a sort of mentality we're in now, isn't it? Yeah. That, <laughs> that herd panic. I'm not sure about herd immunities, herd panicking. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> it really is, yeah. I also bought twenty-four toilet rolls today, just to be on the safe side. You're one of them. Because you never know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I did say in the week, maybe we need to start stocking up with like tinned stuff for Christmas. And I saw some mince pies at the shop the other day and I was like, should I get some? In case we can't get any at Christmas. I don't even really like mince pies, but. Any news in the world of true crime this week, Phoebe? I think the big news this week and today especially is that Wayne Cousins has been sentenced for the uh, rape, murder and desecration. I think it was called yeah. is that right um Probably. of yeah. sarah everard and he's been given a whole life term which, which we know they don't hand very many of those out no no and i think mainly because of his abuse of his position yeah as a serving police officer yeah he air quotes here arrested her for violating covid rules which is terrifying it just completely changes the narrative because it's not just somebody walking home who was like launched on by a man it was somebody in like a position of trust who arrested her and then took her away and it's like what what are women supposed to do against things like that if someone stops you and arrests you okay you've been stopped and arrested police warrant (laughs) warrant card card. yeah you know which is the thing to do in that situation yeah it's just such an abuse of trust. Yes. But uh, you mentioned the fact that he's been given a, a full life term. And yeah. there was a, a short article about it on the BBC website today, which oh, I okay. thought was interesting about how that came about. Right, so okay. um, I'll, I'll pretty much read this word for word, but it sort of explains yeah. a little bit about it. So, so when Parliament abolished the death penalty, which was now more than 50 years ago, It promised the British people that the worst of the very worst offenders would be locked up in jail for the rest of their lives. Okay. I mean, we know that isn't always the case, don't we? Um, Yeah. Recent discussions we've had, people given 30 years and a few have recently been released, things like that. Yeah. Anyway, since, since that happened, a series of complex rules for judges has evolved in order for a whole life order, which is what it's called, to be imposed 
The law says a whole life order should normally only be considered if an offender if an offender has murdered more than once, killed a police or prison officer, abducted and sadistically killed a child, or where the motive or where the motive was ideological. Oh, that's interesting. Because I did think that actually. I thought obviously what he did to her was absolutely horrific, but it was mm. only one person mm. and I wasn't aware of kind of any other people who just killed one person in that sort of situation that had been given a whole life term. So I did yeah. think that actually. And it goes on to say, while MPs at the time when these laws were being written did not envisage such a serious crime as this when they wrote the law, they said judges could impose a whole life order in other unthinkable cases mm, okay. where the seriousness of the crime was exceptionally high. It's pretty so unthinkable, it, isn't it? it is a man really, poses it well using his position as a policeman to kidnap, rape and murder a girl is pretty horrific. Yeah, I, I, as we just said, yeah, all those things just awful. In this case, Lord Justice Fulford concluded the misuse of a constable's role to deceive, kidnap, rape and murder Sarah Everard was as bad as terrorism. It was not only a crime of appalling and prolonged suffering for the victim, but it undermined trust in the police, part of the bedrock of a safe society. And so that's why the law allowed the judge to order that cousins will never be released. Wow, because it's not even like a whole life term with 30 years bail, you know, to be considered 30 years sort of thing, to minimum, what am I trying to say? It's not like 30 to life. life. (laughs) Yeah, that sort of thing. It's not like, it's a life term, but actually after 14 years, we can consider it or something. This is life. No, this is real life, not life in, well, maybe 20, 25 years, as you say. Yeah. Whole life term. And uh, yeah, there aren't many, are there, people in the country that are on that I feel this is definitely a sort of situation where if the death penalty was in place, Mm. he would have definitely got the death penalty. So it makes sense for him to go to prison for life. Other news this week is that um, in the case of Sabina Nessa, the teacher who was very sadly murdered a couple of weeks ago now, um, a man has been arrested and has been in court charged with her uh, murder. Kochi Selamaj is 36. He was a garage worker. um, And so we'll wait to see what happens there lastly i have been obsessed the last week or so with watching court tv if you like watching live courtroom court tv is the place for you they're generally televising murders um and it's just fascinating just watching murders murder trials yeah not actual murders murder trials (laughs) you don't really see anything gory um it's just fascinating watching them like question the witnesses and seeing like the cases kind of fall together um and there's a case i've been following closely this week about um a girl who was 15 who went missing in west virginia and her mom's boyfriend um is on trial for her murder i mean he absolutely did it there's no way that he didn't do it all of the evidence (laughs) completely stacked up against him but because i didn't know anything about it it's been really fascinating just to kind of see it unfold but me to make my mind up about, I guess. But um, it, well, I've only seen the prosecution side of it so far. I haven't actually seen any of the defense so far. But I might change my mind when I see the defense. But <laughs> yes. so far, I'm pretty confident they did it. <laughs> okay. Where and where do we get to see that? Uh, it's on Sky Channel One Seven Nine. Okay. If you uh, have Sky. All right. Um, and I don't know, yeah, I've got you on Sky. So 
you can watch it there and it's all day it's like 24 hours a day brilliant okay tonight phoebe episode 34 of dad and daughter do death where we home in on stories of true crime from the uk and europe mm-hmm. we're going to move the action to france okay not been to france for a while we haven't been to france for a while have we no in this case we're going back about 100 years to when all the action happened and it is the story of Henri Désiré Landru Landru okay. L A N D R U Okay he was also referred to as the blue beard of Paris but we'll come on to that later Okay like a pirate No blue beard wasn't a pirate Oh that's blackbeard <laughs> We'll we'll talk about uh, how this relates to okay. Bluebeard, but there is there is a um, a fable of Bluebeard, a, a fairy tale. It's a bit of a horrific uh, fairy okay. tale, um, like they all are, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll see how that fits in with this later on. Oh, okay. Now this is a complicated story. Okay, and please take notes. Is... <laughs> <laughs> no, I just sit back and listen. Um, there's an awful lot of information around this, and I have done my best to try and uh, um, concentrate the most important parts of it into okay. um, a story which runs, I think, six pages <laughs> tonight. Wow. Okay. So uh, here we go. So I'll settle in. Settle in. Yeah. So Henri Landru was born on the 12th of April, 1869. He was the son of a furnace stoker and a laundress, and they were strong followers of the Catholic faith. So he was educated by monks at a Catholic school in Ile-Saint-Louis. He served there as an altar boy, and by his late teens, he'd become a subdeacon. And some of his duties involved lighting candles and helping priests with their vestments. Okay. Very responsible role to have. Mm. So we, we're going to be moving ahead in time fairly swiftly with this. Okay. <laughs> um, so we now jump forward to 1887, where he's about 18 years old, where he met Marie-Catherine Reme, who apparently fell in love with him at, at her first sight of him at a church mass. Okay. But some reports also claim that she was actually his cousin or one of his cousins. Oh, okay. So um, there was some sort of relationship. But uh, their love affair was intense and their first child was born in 1891. Okay. And he was like 22, I suppose, 21, 22, just as Henri was entering national service, which he carried out in the northern French town of Saint-Quintin. While in the army, he rose from the rank of private to deputy quartermaster, and in 1893 he returned to Paris and to Marie Catherine, who was already pregnant with their second child. Okay. They married and went on to have two more children in 1896 and 1900. Now Marie Catherine worked as a laundress, a bit like his mother did, while Henri moved from job to job: accountant, furniture salesman, mechanic. Assistant toy maker, even. <laughs> there you go. Lots of different jobs. Now, one of the employers that he worked for was himself unscrupulous. And he actually swindled Henri out of some money that he had lodged with this guy by way of a bond. 
it, the, the employee just ran off with the money and he never saw it again. And oh, very nice. Having been a victim of this sort of swindling, this left a big impression on Henri. And okay. despite doing pretty well with his own jobs, a furniture salesman, mechanic, toy maker, whatever, <laughs> he also turned to swindling people out of money himself. Oh, no. So one of his schemes was that, that in 1898, he designed a simple motorcycle, which he called the Londru. but he needed investors to build a factory and found a few people willing to put money into his venture but guess what he ran off with all of the money so he was now having to lie low but still managed to come up with other ideas to swindle people into investing in him including a mechanical toy and a new railway line for the west of paris i mean that's quite a big (laughs) That's quite, That's quite the scheme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Linking suburbs together or, or something. Yeah. Um, so now he was on the run, seeing very little of his family and hiding out mainly in Le Havre at the time, apparently. And in amongst all that, he had four children as well. God, I think I'm busy. <laughs> in 1904, Londru was arrested while trying to escape from a bank that he had tried to defraud. <laughs> And while he was in custody waiting to well, waiting trial, he attempted suicide. But it is generally regarded that that was a bit of a hoax, that it was a bit of a, okay. a, a sham attempt. He was slipping his head through a noose that he'd made out of the bed sheet in his cell just as a guard was entering. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was like, a, yeah. Nevertheless, he was assessed by psychiatrists at the prison and he was found to be on the borderline of madness. And this was confirmed by two other psychiatrists as well. Nevertheless, he was tried for his attempt to defraud the bank and sentenced to two years imprisonment. What year was it by now? Sorry. uh, So he was arrested in 1904. So that's when all that happened, yeah. Okay. So when he came out, it was 1906. And he was caught again while trying to swindle more people. In fact, he spent the next sort of decade in and out of jail for various fraud and fraudulent schemes and things. If he didn't want to look after his four children, he shouldn't have had them. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Meanwhile, his wife and family were sort of living in a series of run-down apartments all around Paris. They'd sort of be constantly on the move between all these Mm -mm. terrible places. Now, in 1909, he posed as a wealthy, single businessman. He tried to persuade an affluent widow to let him take care of her assets in a kind of a prenup sort of arrangement. Okay. <laughs> but, of course, he ran off with all of her financial assets. Uh, but he was actually caught trying to cash one of her investment certificates. So he was back in prison. Now, by this time, his mother had died. And his father, who was so ashamed by his son's behaviour and his criminal lifestyle that he'd taken on, his father actually hanged himself from a tree in the Bois oh de Boulogne. Apparently, uh, Marie Catherine, his sort of estranged sometime wife, claimed that it was out of shame for his son. But Henri's father had left Marie Catherine money for her to use to bring up 
his grandchildren. Okay. Now, the next time that Henri was out of prison, he stole that money from her and uh, went on the run again. I mean, what is he doing with all this money that he's he's getting? I'm I'm not sure quite how successful he is with some of these swindles. He he evidently raised quite a lot from the motorcycle factory and and the mechanical toys and everything. But whether or not he's still got it or not, I don't know. In 1914, when Laundrie was now 44, he again tried another fraud. This time, the scam was to build a motor vehicle factory. He raised 35,000 francs from investors, but of course, he just took the money and went on the run, together with the inheritance that he'd stolen from his wife. The police tried to find him, to arrest him, but they just could not track him down anywhere. So, he was actually tried in absentia which is quite a common thing in France. That programme, Sophie, the West Court murder, about Sophie, uh, the French woman who was found murdered in West Court in Ireland, the suspect there was tried in absentia and found guilty. So that's that's very recent. I mean, it's only like two two or three years ago that that happened. So so that is the thing. Uh, So anyway, in his absence, they found him guilty, funnily enough, and... With this latest set of frauds, together with his previous frauds and crimes that he'd committed, he was sentenced to four years hard labour, followed by exile for life on the French Pacific island of New Caledonia. My God, why didn't they just send him off to war? Because <laughs> <laughs> he was too old. He was 44 oh, in okay, 1914, yeah. which is obviously when First World War was started. Yeah. France was very much... In the middle of that. So what he'd actually done is he'd escaped to the town of Chantilly, which I think is about 30 miles north of Paris. He was still married to Marie Catherine, but hardly saw her or the children. On one of Landru's trips back to Paris, he met Jeanne Couchet, who was 39, and her son André, 17. Now, she knew Landru as Raymond Diard, and he promised to marry her support her and to support Andre. So they moved to live with him in his house in Chantilly. But not long afterwards, they fell out with each other and Jean and Andre moved back to Paris. Nevertheless, they were supposed to meet up again. And Diard was due to rendezvous with them, but he never showed up. Jean went back to the house in Chantilly, taking her sister and her brother-in-law, like her sister's husband, with her, where they discovered all of these fake documents, because Laundry wasn't actually there. They discovered all these fake documents. So based on that and the fact he hadn't turned up and all the other arguments and things they had, she announced that her engagement was over and she went back to Paris to be with her son who himself was now working in an automobile factory because he was just a little bit too young to join the war effort. But guess what? They kind of met up again and got back together again. And Couchet and Henri, who was now going by the name of Mr. Couchet, I don't know what happened to (laughs) Monsieur Diard, but he seems to have all these different aliases, and Andre moved into a house uh, in a little town along the Seine, just outside of Paris. And that was in November 1914. Now, friends of both Jean and Andre report having 
letters and cards from them over the next couple of months, up until January 1915. But after that, all communication with them stopped and no one ever saw them again. Mm. Mysterious. Mysterious. Particularly as they didn't seem to have much in the way of assets and these previous yeah. uh, crimes and things had all been to do with the fraud to get money out of people. But yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, Londrew was on a bit of a roll now. He started putting adverts in Lonely Hearts columns of newspapers. Because now there were quite a lot of widowed women in France, having lost their husbands to the war. He then started a very complex series of relationships with a total of nine women. Oh, wow. (laughs) And all of whom knew him by a different name, different alias. He kept a notebook in which he kept records of the aliases he used for the different women. Jesus. (laughs) That sounds like way too much effort. It's unbelievable. It really is. Um, yeah. And, and these relationships were kind of running at the same time, or at least they, they overlapped each other. So he oh might be seeing someone and then you'd start seeing someone else. And yeah. And his modus operandi was very much that he would meet up with these women through the Lonely Hearts columns. He would promise to look after them and become their new husband and, and he managed to talk them into allowing him to look after their investments and to take over their assets and say, yeah, I'll, I'll look after all that for you. And, of course, he just pocketed the money. Yep. But in this case, after he did that, these women were never seen again. Dun, dun, dun. So, yeah, what he'd do is he would um, befriend these women, he would... Um, build up a relationship with them over a period of time to gain their trust and to promise them all these things. And uh, when he eventually managed to get the papers or access to their assets or banks or whatever, he would arrange a meet-up with them at one of his houses, which he now had in, in Paris, where on the chosen day, he more than likely strangled them to kill them. Mm-mm. Now, the problem was there were never any bodies found of these people, and that became a little bit of a difficulty for the for the authorities later on when, when yeah. they, they caught up with him. But it's believed that what he did was he would, after strangling them, he would dismember them and burn them in his Ooh. stove that he had Ooh, nice. in the house. And there are actually quite a lot of pictures from the time. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> including pictures of the stove, which ultimately they brought into court. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. As evidence, but we'll we'll come on to that. So it's difficult to know exactly in which order he met these people, because I say he didn't meet one, have a relationship, Mm. swindle them, kill them, move on to the next, move on to the next. He was meeting one, wooing them. Then he was also meeting up with someone else and then maybe even someone else and then disposing of the first one and then the third one and perhaps coming back to the second one. It was was a very, very complex sort of arrangement he got going. Just think if he'd like applied himself to work, he'd have gone so far. (laughs) Yes, he would have, as is the case with so many of these things. Yeah. So, um, So in no real particular order, because as I say, it's difficult to know in what order he met them and Mm. or what order he killed them, his victims were 
Teresa Laborde Linné, who was 46 and actually born in Argentina. Marie Angelique Guillain, she was 52. Bertha Aeon, 55. Anna Colom, 44. Andre Babele, and she was only 19. Oh my God. Celestine Bousson, 47. Louise Joam, 38. Anne Marie Pascal, 37. Marie Theresa Merchadier, 37. So those were the nine women wow. that he is known to have lured into his trap, stolen their assets, and killed. Oh, no. Because some of these people were already estranged from their families, they were all widows or in other, or in other ways single. Difficult to say that nobody missed them, but it was difficult to, uh, to find anybody really that was reporting these people missing, except, okay. except that one of his victims, Celestine Bousson, had a half-sister called Marie Lacoste. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1915, Marie Lacoste actually met Landrieu and she took an immediate dislike to him. Now, in the case of Celestine Bousson, he was calling himself Georges Fremier. (laughs) So that was his alias for for that one. And she especially disliked him when Celestine told Marie Lacoste that she had agreed that Fremier... Uh, should take over her investments and um, that they were going to be getting married and everything was going to be lovely. So Marie said, I don't want any more to do with this. There's something really wrong here. Um, You should get out of this. But Celestine didn't take any notice and they actually didn't really speak for a while. For a really long time. Yeah. And then Landru Frenier, whatever his name was at, (laughs) at the time, took Celestine to one of his houses uh, and did what he did, and she was never seen again. Oh, no. However, he was aware that Marie Lacoste was suspicious of him, and he okay. thought that perhaps Marie Lacoste would think it strange that she hadn't heard from her half-sister for such a long time. So he tried to convince Lacoste that her sister was still alive by sending postcards from Celestine. But of course, Marie Lacoste knew that they were fake. So that just, that just made her even more suspicious. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't help himself there. No. And uh, Laundry even invited Marie Lacoste round for dinner to say, come to dinner with me and Celestine and we can all meet up and be happy. But of course, Celestine was nowhere around. If she had turned up, she would have ended up in the oven as well. Probably. But she never accepted his invitations. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, she actually compiled a dossier of all the events that uh, she found suspicious and even managed to link up with the sister of Anna Colom, a lady called Victorine Pelle. And together they sort of compared notes and decided that, yeah, there was something very strange going on here. And they both submitted missing persons reports to the Parisian Ooh, police. Okay. Now, eventually the case was taken up by and the equivalent of a detective, I suppose, <laughs> Jules Bellin of the Paris Flying Squad, 
Now, by this time, it's 1919. So oh, wow, okay. this this scam had been going on since 1915. So sort of four years of doing what he was doing. Now, there was a hunt that went on for what Marie Lacoste thought was a guy called Fremier, but they didn't really find anything because he was very good at sort of disappearing and keeping himself mm. undercover and going to ground. But by chance, a friend of Marie Lacoste who knew what Londru looked like spotted him while she was out shopping. Uh, and Henri Londru was with his latest mistress. They were actually in a, a crockery shop buying plates or some such. Now, the friend told Lacoste, who in turn notified Inspector Bellin of the Flying Squad, Berlin went to the shop in question and managed to retrieve Laundrie's business card that he'd left at the, mm, at the okay. shop, which actually included, a, well, quite a different address, actually, to the one that Marie Lacoste thought that he was living at. Now, there was a bit of um, confusion with arrest warrants because at the time they thought his name was Fremier, but his name was really mm. Laundrie. <laughs> but the next day... Uh, they actually managed to arrive at this address that was on the business card with an arrest warrant in the name of Henri Landru. Oh, wow. And they arrested him. And the date was the 12th of April, 1919. That was his 50th <sighs> birthday. What a way to spend your birthday. <laughs> yes. Now, once he was arrested, that's when the investigation started. Because really up to now, the police had had nothing, no real intelligence about this case at all. No. After Landru's arrest, the police found evidence that he had stolen their financial assets and managed to defraud them out of all their wealth and things, but not only their money, but possessions as well. Okay. Furniture, the apartments themselves, all sorts of things he, uh, he'd managed to take from them. Uh, in fact, he'd sold some of their more valuable possessions, but he'd stored other stuff that he'd taken in like a lock-up garage and um, sort of what we'd call now, I suppose, self-storage places yeah. all around wow. Paris and various depots and things. And the police were able to uh, find all this out and, and find these hordes of property that he'd stolen. And they also found information that were in amongst all this property of tens of other women who he'd contacted through the Lonely Hearts adverts. Oh my God. Because he was, he was promoting himself as being this, uh, you know, lonely businessman who was wealthy and looking for a soulmate. And of course, as I said, in the war, yeah. there were a lot of women. A lot of lonely were... women. <laughs> so even though they had all this evidence of his fraudulent activity, they didn't really have any evidence of murder. Okay. Now, they'd found fragments of bone in his oven. Oh, my God. But that evidence was not really conclusive. The police looked into his family. Do you remember yeah. Marie, Catherine, and the, and and the, the four, four kids? kids yeah. And they decided that they had actually been complicit in keeping his whereabouts a secret. And in actual fact, in aiding and abetting his activities, Oh, two of his sons, his eldest, yeah, his, two of his sons, his eldest and his youngest, they even tried to follow in his footsteps. One helping to clear five of these women's apartments after they disappeared. Oh my God. Yeah. 
And another one was found guilty of swindling people. So doing the sort of swindles that his father used to do. Yeah. Um, that was around, that was in 1915 when that was uh, discovered, just as he was going to war, just as that particular son was going to war. And he actually ended up at a court martial for his offences. Wow. And Marie Catherine. His wife was also found to have forged one of the missing women's signatures to be able to get access to bank accounts. No way. Yeah, so the eldest son and Marie Catherine were actually arrested in December 1919 as part of the investigations, but both of them were eventually released without charge. So the evidence they had against him was flaky, but they knew that he'd... Well, he got a record for one thing because he'd been in and out of prison... He knew they knew that he'd been defrauding people out of a lot of money and possessions, and these well, total of eleven people had disappeared. These nine women, plus that first woman and her son that disappeared right. at the beginning of this spree. So after two years of investigation between nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty one, it eventually came to trial in early November of nineteen twenty one. Wow, it's a long time. Yeah, it did take a long time, yeah, because they were trying to patch all this evidence together. Mm-hmm. The case was heard in Versailles, slightly out of Paris, as a compromise on the location because of the implications it had on where the women came from and where he was known okay. to have houses and things like that. So, And the, the, the judge, I suppose, the, the court allowed photographs to be taken in the courtroom Oh, okay. Um, which were published regularly throughout the trial, and it oh, wow. stirred up tremendous interest in the case. It is fascinating watching watching <laughs> yes, trials. Tell you, it's like uh, yeah, court TV, TV was court photographs sort of in yeah. the papers every day, and celebrities would come to the courthouse to um, oh wow to to watch the case happening. It became he became quite a celebrity, and it, it was quite a sensation coming so soon after the end of the war mm. by this stage, but in a time when France was really in a bad way after the war. Yeah. The prosecution laid out a number of what they call proofs, including the fact that when he was um, meeting these women, sort of ultimately for the last time, he would only buy them one-way tickets to, oh, okay. to, to wherever it was, to Paris or where it was he was going because they had evidence of that. And they had these sort of bits of bone and stuff, but mm, that was really it. It could have <laughs> it's been quite difficult to mean, find. couldn't it? It would, could have, like, obviously, they could, if they could have tested it and they could have found it, but he could have argued that it was, like, meat or, you know, from a... Could have done, yeah. Something that they've eaten that was in there, yeah. Yeah, they could have done. I, they did... I think they knew it was human. I think they oh, could okay. tell it was human, but they couldn't tell how many different skeletons all these bones came yeah. from. They couldn't tell the gender of of the uh, skeleton from which the bones came from. So it was all a bit, yeah, he was quite good at covering up those tracks yeah. as well. Well, if you can cover up nine affairs essentially yeah. simultaneously, I'm sure yeah. you can get rid of some bodies. He He was quite a... You must have an awful lot of energy to do all this. Yeah. I bet he was exhausted by the time it finished. He was, yeah. he was quite glad that it was over. 
The defence apparently did a good job in claiming that you know there was very little evidence and what there was was circumstantial. But they agreed that they couldn't explain why these women had never been seen again, especially after he'd been arrested. You know, they didn't come forward and say, well, actually, yeah, no, we're here. Nobody did. They tried to convince the court that he actually sold them into the white slave trade and they were now on the oh, other okay. side of the world or <laughs> whatever. Surely that's still like a punishable crime, though, selling women into the white slave trade. Uh, well, yeah, it probably was, yeah, but maybe not yeah. as bad as murder. I... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Now, throughout the whole trial, Andrew was very obstructive. He was not at all cooperative. He would be asked for days questions and he just either refused to answer them or basically say the equivalent of no comment or right, yeah, okay. he was he was generally not very helpful. He was disinterested, he was sarcastic to the court, mm. and he vehemently claimed his innocence throughout. Okay. Nevertheless, the jury went out on the thirtieth of November, so it was a good long time. It was best part yeah. of a month uh in court. They took three hours to deliberate. And they came back with a nine to three guilty verdict of okay. the 11 murders. Wow. But they also came with a, um, a unanimous verdict that he was guilty of the theft and the fraud that he'd carried out. Okay. Wait, who were the other two people that he murdered? Madame Couchet and her son. Oh, Andre. and her son, Andre. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then, then it the was them years. that had written the letters and they disappeared and they'd never been heard of yeah. again. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. Then that was back in... Right at the beginning, yeah. Now, apparently, that was enough to sentence him to death by guillotine. Wow. Now, I think it's flaky and I can't find anything anywhere that indicates much in the way of more evidence than that, other than right. it was generally accepted that, that these are the things that he did. He... he, he took these women in, he defrauded them out of all their wealth, he killed them and very efficiently disposed of their bodies. Very efficiently disposed of their bodies. Yeah. I mean, if he did well, dismember them to get them in this oven, which you'll see from the pictures, it's not huge. He must have had to cut them up to get them in there and whatever he did. I guess if they had luminol and <laughs> DNA testing say, yeah. and stuff like that back in the the nineteen. 19- 18, 19 sort of period, they would have uh, perhaps found a lot more. But mm. I, uh, I think by today's standards, the evidence was flaky. But he was sentenced yeah. to death by guillotine. Um, originally, he refused to sign a clemency appeal document stating that, okay. why should he? Because he was innocent. Why should he appeal for clemency for if he was innocent? But eventually he did. Um, hoping for a life of exile on some Pacific hey. island, which sounds quite nice, actually. No, I, would, I would be up for exile on a Pacific island. <laughs> Rather than death. But the president of France at the time, Alexandra Millenard, rejected the plea for, the plea for clemency. So okay. the sentence of death remained. Now, prisoners in France were never told of their execution date not like that's brutal, uh, that. others that even now that you don't know exactly when, but at some point you'll get no. a date, won't you? And um, yeah, and well, you, you... yeah, once all your appeals are done, they'll be like, right, this is the yeah. date that it's going to be. Yeah, but no, they just uh, 
turn up at your cell one morning and drag you out. And that's that's exactly brutal, what that is. Yeah. So it was just before dawn on the morning of the 25th of February, 1922. Okay. He was marched out of the gates of the prison de Saint-Pierre in Versailles, where the guillotine was waiting for him. He wasn't very cooperative with anybody. He refused a final drink of brandy, which was traditional for a condemned yeah. prisoner. He was strapped onto the guillotine and his head was chopped off. As is oh, the way wow. with the guillotine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> His body was buried in an unmarked grave uh, near the prison in Versailles, not actually within the grounds, but nearby. But somehow or other, his head, rather macabrely, is actually on display at the Museum of Death in Hollywood. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, allegedly. I mean, yeah, it's undeniable that there are pictures. If you look up Londru's head. <laughs> Let's have a look at this. You'll find the pictures of this whiz- withered up mummified head that's like in a glass case. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Now, whether that is his head or not, I don't know. Who will never know? Is he's got the same like, brow. It's got yeah. the same kind of brow as the top of his head. Wow. So maybe when they buried his body, they didn't bury his head. For the head, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, yeah. So that is the story of Henri Landru, the otherwise known as the Bluebeard of Paris. Now, the, the reason that he was sometimes referred to as the Bluebeard of Paris, Bluebeard is this sort of folklore tale come fairy tale about this rich aristocratic man who had lots of wives one after the other and they all mysteriously disappeared oh okay when he took them back to his big castle because he was very rich and powerful he was looking for a a new wife and he selected this young girl uh, to be his next wife bluebeard then had to go on some sort of business trip and he left her the keys of the castle okay and he told her that she could go into any room that she wanted to apart from this one particular room so So she obviously went into that room so that was the room that she obviously (laughs) went into you're absolutely right and when she opened the door inside were all of the bodies of his previous wives oh no and to cut a long story short she managed to escape with the help of her brothers and raised the alarm and that was the downfall of bluebeard and the the similarity here is that he had a lot of women, women not necessarily yeah. wives, but uh, he promised to make them his wife. Yeah. In all cases, <laughs> who mysteriously disappeared. And it was a young, well, half sister of one of the victims that basically rumbled him and gave mm. him away. So, uh, hence the parallel there. Yeah. So that was it. So, yeah, that's the story. Uh, there's quite a lot of pictures wow. of him of him in court, of the stove that they brought into court, uh, of his severed head, which, yeah. given what it is, I don't think there'd be a problem sticking out on Instagram. <laughs> no, I don't think so. We've, I think there's been gorier pictures that we've shared on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there is tons and tons of information out there about him. There are all sorts wow. of films and documentaries. There was a Charlie Chaplin film that was based on his story. Oh, no yeah, there's there's a lot. 
So really, we've just dipped into it there. That's an introduction mm. to Henri Londru. And if uh, anybody's interested in learning more, well, you know about him now. Go and yeah. take a look. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story with me. Another European serial killer that I knew nothing about. Yeah, there's so many, so many of these stories that are still being discovered by us uh, that we're bringing to our listeners' attention because chances are they haven't heard of them either. I would assume so. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I'll put some pictures onto our social media pages. I will put them onto our Instagram page, which can be found at... At Dad and Daughter Do You Death. And on our Facebook page. Just search for Dad and Daughter Do You Death. If you'd like to email us, please get in touch. Dad and daughter do death at gmail.com. And you can always message us through the social media pages as well. Our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, all the main podcast yep, providers. Yeah, much anywhere you get your podcasts. If you have an Alexa, you can ask her, or Google, you can ask them to play Dad and Daughter Do You Death. And as if by magic, we'll come out of your smart speaker. We will. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it. Um, If you did, please do like, subscribe, rate, download, all those things and tell your friends. Yes. And uh, we'll be back with you next time for, for more tales of true crime from the UK and Europe. We will. And because it's October, there will be a spooky twist (laughs) (laughs) looking forward to it so join us next time when once again dad and daughter do death